begin, I was struck by uh, the slides Andy put up about Billy Graham's life. I read somewhere this week that, uh, that Billy Graham saw three and a half million people converted in his ministry, which I think makes him the most effective evangelist probably the world has ever seen. But he spoke to 215 million people. Some of those have been Christians bringing their friends along to things. But he spoke to 215 million people and saw three and a half million converted. Which is not a massively good hit rate, really, when you think about it. I mean, I'd take three and a half million people all day long, but it's, it's not a massively brilliant hit rate. I wonder, what do you think it was that sustained Billy Graham to keep standing up and preaching the gospel to those vast crowds, knowing that the majority of the people in the room would go home uh, unconverted. What persuaded him to keep doing it? And what would persuade Albert McMakin, his friend who brought him to hear the gospel, risk his friendship to bring him along to hear the gospel talk, and in that one act, uh, change the world? And I guess more pressingly, what will persuade you and I to do the same. Not to be a Billy Graham, but to uh, proclaim the gospel in our friendships and our family circles, knowing that some people won't be saved. What's going to persuade us to do that? That's what we're thinking about this morning. Let me uh, pray for us as we come to, to this difficult passage and difficult subject. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Our Father, I confess my own weakness this morning before this passage and before these people. The temptation to run from teaching hard things is great. And so please cleanse my mouth from impurity and idolatry. Give me your words to speak and cleanse every heart in this room to receive your words in the right way. And please do a miraculous work in some here. Draw people from death to life. Reanimate those dry bones, our Father. We long for that and pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now I began our series last week by saying that doctrine is important It's important for us to know about Jesus because it helps us to cling on to him as the one who gives us everything that we need. It helps us to humble ourselves before God to know that he is the one working for us rather than the other way around. And it helps us to glorify him, to praise him, to delight in him. And I know for some of us last week this was not easy. I think for probably most of us in the room at some point this series is going to be painful. If uh, Christian faith were a house, this series is not uh, fiddling with the taps and and rewiring a plug. This is uh, strengthening, repairing, even uh, tearing down and replacing the foundations and the superstructure, the, the, the big girders that make up the building. And that sort of work is never comfortable to live through. And because I know that, the temptation for me today is to try and uh, absolutely persuade you that what I'm going to teach you is biblical. And I could do that by bringing hundreds of verses from all over the Bible to say, look, here, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. 
to say, look, God's call and regeneration are biblical ideas. But I'm not going to do that. For two reasons, really. The first is, taking a bunch of verses out of their original context is not the way we should read the Bible. We need to understand each of those verses in the context that God has given them. But secondly, because we're addressing the big girders and the foundations of the biblical faith, I don't need to do that work for you this week. I need to show you that this is in the Bible. I need to tell you what it means. And because you're Bible people and you'll read your Bibles, you will see uh, these themes, these doctrines, all over the Bible in the months and years ahead. I know it can take that long to come to terms with some of these things. I am going to offer you a few verses uh, later on in in our study together, uh, admittedly out of their context, but I think teaching you what they mean to show you there's more to be said on this, on this subject than I'm going to teach you from Ezekiel. But mostly what we're going to do is stay in Ezekiel this morning. But I want to begin with a diagram. Uh, I think Sarah's got a lot of work to do this morning with things up on the screen. Um, uh, last week, we began by saying Romans chapter 8 uh, teaches us at uh, the spine of the order of salvation. Okay, uh, Four things. Uh, election, God uh, chooses people, then he calls those people, then he justifies them, then he glorifies them. I think I'll move faster than the screen can keep up. And what I want to do now is just to fill out that picture and show you where we're going in this series. We're doing an eight-week series, we're only in week two, and it's helpful, I think, to know where we're heading with these things. So the the second uh, slide, please. It may be helpful uh, to answer this question. Okay, Uh, keep going. Uh, there should be more in there. Um, why pull apart the doctrine of salvation? We talk about being saved people. Why pull it apart into uh, ten bits, which we're going to look at over eight weeks? Why, for example, uh, take progressive sanctification, growing in godliness, and separate it from positional sanctification, that is being set apart for God? Why separate those two things? Surely it's just sanctification. Or, or why divide conversion, that's the blue box there, why divide that into four bits? It's all conversion, isn't it? Why have a, a calling and regeneration, faith and repentance, which normally happen all within nanoseconds of each other, so you can't divide them chronologically, why separate them into four parts and look at them over these two weeks? Let me say, I think, first of all, because the Bible does. The Bible talks about each of these things as though they are distinct, and because the Bible is precise, we want to be precise as well. The reason we want to be precise is that some of these things are things that we do with God. We'll come to next week to faith and repentance. They're things that we do. Uh, perseverance and progressive sanctification. Those are things that we do with God's help. But there are things up there that God does in and to us. And if we get those things confused, if, for example, we say, uh, my justification is something that God does and I do as well, well, we'll be very badly confused, to the point of actually reversing the Reformation. We'll come to that in a couple of weeks' time. God has given us precision in the Bible, and therefore it's beholden on us to be as clear as the Bible is where we can be. Uh, next slide, please. Over the next week and this week and next week, then we're going to be looking at the blue box, uh, focused on conversion. 
God has chosen his people, we saw that last week, but how is it that people become Christians? What is going on? Today we're looking at God's effectual call, God calling us towards the kingdom and regeneration or the new birth. And these are not uh, trivial truths. Jesus says in John uh, 3 verse 5, that's the next slide please, Sarah, sorry. Uh, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. You must be born again, Jesus says. Of course, you don't need to know about the new birth to receive the new birth. Let's not get confused about these things. But I think it's important that we try to understand them so we can recognise them. Perhaps an illustration will help at this point. In Acts chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, Luke is there recording an experience he had with the Apostle Paul outside Philippi. He says in in verses 13 and 14... On the Sabbath, next slide please. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now we'll think about next time what that response will have been at faith and repentance. Today we need to think about what Luke means by saying the Lord opened her heart. What did God do to Lydia? What did God do in the hearts of three and a half million people before Billy Graham's crusades that meant they were able to respond rightly to Paul's teaching? That's what we're thinking about this morning. And so let's jump into effectual call and regeneration. What I'm going to do for the rest of our time uh, this morning is this. First of all, I'm going to state the doctrine as simply as I can do it. Uh, then I'm going to show you from Ezekiel what it is uh, that, uh, that I've said is true. Uh, thirdly, I'll take us to a few other passages, a handful of other texts that uh, flesh this out a little bit from the New Testament. And finally, we'll think about how this doctrine should apply to our own thinking and behaviour. Uh, There are two doctrines here, so let's take them one at a time. Let's think about calling. Let me say there are two types of calling in the Bible. Uh, That's important to distinguish. Uh, First, you see, if I say to you now, repent and believe the gospel, I'm calling everybody in the room to repent and believe the gospel. I am calling you to respond. That's the general call. That happens every time a a preacher uh, asks you to respond to the message. And presumably that's what Paul did in that that place of prayer outside Philippi. But it doesn't have to happen in preaching. It it happens when you're talking to a friend over a coffee and you explain the gospel and say, you really ought to respond to this. It happens when you're sitting with your kids at bedtime and you read the Bible with them and you say, you really ought to respond to this. Uh, Jesus does it in great crowds. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, the uh, feeding of the 5,000, he teaches vast crowds of people He casts the seed of the gospel as far and wide as he can do. And not everybody responds correctly. You'd like to think that if Billy Graham were preaching or Jesus was preaching, everyone would be converted. But of course it doesn't happen like that. Because God has not done in them what he did in Lydia. But there is a second call. 
if, if the first is the general call, which is not effectual, doesn't make everybody a Christian, this is uh, God's call that comes through the first. It's hidden, if you like, underneath the preaching of the gospel. And this is God's effectual call. This is where God reaches out and persuades the heart of one of the hearers of the message that the gospel is real, the gospel is true. Of course, it's not necessarily an immediate thing. It can come through some half-remembered Sunday school lesson years after the fact. It can happen through a hymn that you remember singing as a child much later on. It can happen just from reading the Bible. God's call comes through the word. And so most often it does come through some sort of Bible teaching, as we've seen with Billy Graham's Crusades. If God has chosen you, listen to last week's talk, then at some point in your life, uh, you will hear the gospel message and God will call you into his kingdom. That's what Romans 8 uh, was all about last week. Those whom he chose, he also called. Every chosen one is a called one. We see this in uh, Matthew 22, verse 14. Next slide. For many are invited, says Jesus, that's the general call, but few are chosen. And all the chosen are called by God. That's calling. It is God's action towards us, uh, beckoning us into the kingdom. Uh, but what about God's call, action in us to enable us to hear the call? That brings us to the second uh, doctrine, the new birth. Simply put, every person is naturally, spiritually dead. Think Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus couldn't ask Jesus to save him. And in the same way, uh, spiritually dead people are unable to reach out to God. But in his mercy, God takes our dead, cold hearts and gives us in their place spiritually alive hearts that desire to respond rightly to God. As we'll see shortly, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's perhaps worth taking a moment here to say one or two things about the Holy Spirit, because we'll see a lot of him in this series. It may be that you're somebody who sits here and thinks, we don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit here at Christchurch. For what it's worth, I think that we do, actually. But we don't often focus on him and his work because the Bible rarely focuses on him and his work. The Spirit is God. We worship the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit himself is focused somewhere else. He doesn't stand there going, look at me! He says, look at Jesus in the Bible. He's at work at reaching people uh, through the scriptures. He's at work in the church and he doesn't say, look at me. Uh, we'll see next time. He joins us to Jesus. As we study his work in this doctrinal series, we'll see that actually what he is doing in the church is massively important. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is an enormously important thing. And one of the reasons we're looking at this series is to see his work in the church. But the Spirit works through the Bible, through the effectual call. See, we're, we're Holy Spirit people here at Christchurch, which is why we are Bible people. 
Because the Bible is the sword of the Spirit, his chosen instrument. And you might want to talk to me about about that afterwards. I'm happy to, to have conversations about that. Perhaps the most important work of the Holy Spirit is, in fact, the new birth. Jesus says to us, doesn't he, through his conversation with Nicodemus, that you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So let's summarise the doctrine. God calls to our hearts to turn to him uh, through word ministry notice. And then by his Holy Spirit, he changes our hearts so that we can respond to that message. Gives us the new birth, gives us regeneration. That's why Lydia could respond to Paul. That's the statement of the doctrine. Let me show you it in Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel uh, 36 and 37, uh, page 868, if you've closed your Bibles, please open them again. It's really important that we have your Bible open so you can see that what I'm saying is actually what the Bible says and what the Holy Spirit, therefore, is saying. I'm not going to look at every nuance in this passage. Some of you would have uh, studied it already in our Bible overview a couple of years ago in, in home groups. Uh, one of the reasons I won't do that if we haven't got time, it's a long passage. One of the other reasons is we'll look at some of the other things it says in weeks to come in this series. But I want to prove to you that this uh, language of uh, calling and regeneration is there in the Old Testament as much as it's there in the New. Let's notice that both of these chapters that we had read separately are about the same thing. So uh, chapter 36, verse 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you. See, new heart, new spirit. Then uh, chapter 37, verse 14, the last bit we had read by James, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. Same words, same idea. So let's back up then. Uh, what is the big problem that God is addressing in this, these two chapters that he needs to give us uh, teaching and an illustration about? Well, I think it's, it's illustrated for us in chapter 37, verse 11. Uh, the people of uh, Israel say, these are God's chosen people of the Old Testament, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone, we are cut off. They are experiencing judgment at God's hands. And they feel like they're wasting away. And they kind of are. They're in exile. They're underfed and overworked. And God says, the way you feel physically is how you are spiritually. So he takes Ezekiel to a great valley filled with dead, dry bones. Verse 11, these bones are the people of Israel, he says. Living, breathing people who are spiritually dead. The same issue, I think, is highlighted in a slightly different way in verse 26 of chapter 36, where God diagnoses their problem as a heart of stone. If you have a heart of stone, you're a dead person. In this case, spiritually unfeeling, useless. That verse at 25 has led them into idolatry. So that God has uh, cast his people out of the land, out of his presence, a long way away, into uh, exile, out of the promised land, away from him, because their sin is so abominable in his sight. But the big problem is not their exile. Notice verse 22. The unfeeling dead Israelites who bear God's name have profaned him. 
That is, they have brought shame on his name wherever they have gone. People have pointed at the Israelites and gone, these are God's people? Look at them in their drunkenness and their adultery and their criminal hatred for each other. Now I want you to see how these two things go together because I want you to see that the solution to both of these problems is the same. God, you see, has bound himself by a covenant to Israel and he has bound himself by a covenant to his church in the New Testament. He is absolutely committed to saving his church because his name is bound up with them. They've rejected God because of their unspiritual hearts. Uh, Their problem, you see, is they're cut off from him. His problem is his name is mud because of them. And so to restore God's reputation, which is of paramount importance to God, he must rescue his people. So notice what God does. Uh, First, at chapter 37, verse 4, look down with me. God tells Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones. That is, preach at them. You see, God could raise the bones without that, couldn't he? He could do it in any number of ways. But he chooses to raise the bones to life by preaching. So he sends Ezekiel and he sends us. As Ezekiel preaches, the bones come back together, clicking, clacking together, getting ligaments and muscles on them. But they're still not alive yet until he preaches to the breath to enter them. Now, the Hebrew word for breath also means spirit. And as verse 14 makes clear, this is about the spirit coming to live inside people. Okay, the play on words is deliberate here. These bodies come to life, real spiritual life, by the preaching of Ezekiel and by the Spirit of God. Do you see? God's calling through Ezekiel's preaching and the Spirit of God coming to rest on them brings people to life. Or back in chapter 36, the focus here is less on the preaching or calling that Ezekiel does and more on the new birth. And please notice that all the way through this chapter, it's I will, I will, I will. This is not something that we contribute to. This is what God is doing He gathers them from the nations, verse 24, and he washes them clean from their idolatry. And all of their false loves are gone to be replaced by this heart of uh, flesh. He takes the heart of stone out. This is open heart surgery. God is uh, a heart surgeon. This is spiritual cardiology. And a new heart and a new spirit are given to the people. That is a new inclination, a new love for God. That means that people want to do what God wants them to do. And that's crucial. Notice verse 27. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. Did you hear that? I will move you to follow my decrees. The spirit moves us to act in a different way to the way we would have acted moments before. The difference the new birth makes is extraordinary. And we want nothing to do with God. Perhaps there are some here this morning who feel that inclination. I want nothing to do with God. And then God speaks, calls new birth, suddenly a new heart and a new impulse to do as God desires. Of course we could say that's against the will of the person. It doesn't matter that it's against the will of the person. That person is dead. 
They should want life. They're just too stupid to see it. They need God to act. Get in. God cares about this, not for, our, for the fairness of it. We saw that last week, but for his name's sake. Verse 22. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. It's not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name. Verse 32. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. God's priority is not fairness. God's priority is the glory of his name. That people should know what God is like. That he's a God who rescues sinners. It's all for the honour and glory of his name. He saves people so that the world will look on and say, God saved them? Wow. It's not amazing. But notice again, just like last week, when God acts for his own name's sake, it is the best news for us it possibly could be. I'm not going to go too far here because I don't want to encroach onto week eight of our series, but that the whole second half of our reading in Ezekiel 36 is all about the new creation, a land of plenty, a new Eden, did you notice? It's just like the Garden of Eden, verse 35. God is restoring a sinful people to relationship with himself and a broken world to an Eden-like state so that people go, wow, there's a God. And so God acting for his own glory is also to the maximum good of his people. God gets the glory when he saves a sinful people and gives them his eternal rest. His glory and our maximum good are bound together. Well, let's look at some other texts that will help us to just flesh a few of these things out from the New Testament. There's a lot more of them. I don't want to just throw verses at you, but let me show you a couple of things. Let me show you a key verse from, uh, from the New Testament on calling, which I think is in 2 Thessalonians 2. Thank you, Sarah. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. Notice, thank God because he saves. Uh, brothers loved by God because God chose you calling uh, election last week as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit and through belief in the truth god chose them to be saved through the work of the holy spirit and belief in the truth that's this week and next week that's conversion isn't it how he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our lord jesus christ he called you through the gospel, the effectual call of God, through the hidden, hidden underneath the call of the preacher, as some Christian at some point faithfully shared the gospel with you, maybe your parent, maybe a friend, you were called. For what? To share in his glory. That is the last week. Glorification, that's where we're heading. Now I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty cool. And if you don't yet think that's cool, come back in weeks to come and you'll see why it is. There are other verses. At Romans chapter 11 verse 29 tells us that God's call is irrevocable, which is hard to pronounce and not as comfortable to believe. It means that it is final. 
It cannot be changed, reversed, or affected in any way. When God lays his call on you, you will be converted. And you cannot back out of it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9 builds on that to tell us that God is faithful. He who called you. God calls you and he remains faithful to you. In what sense? Verse 8. He will keep you firm to the end. Remember again Romans chapter 8. He chooses, he calls, he justifies, he will glorify. He will keep you firm to the end. Because his name rests on it. He's bound himself to you in a covenant and he will not let you go. All of which, as I said last week, means there is no space for boasting. So just a little bit further on, verses 26 to 31, Paul shamelessly uses both chosen and called language over and over and over again here. And he says quite emphatically, verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian here this morning, it is because God has chosen you to be a Christian and he's called you into the kingdom. So, verse 31, don't boast in yourself, boast in the Lord. No room for boasting. God calls us through Bible ministry and when he calls us, there is no getting away. He calls everyone that he has chosen and he will keep them to the end which is the ground for our confidence as Christians. What about the new birth? Well, for that, let me give you one passage, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, which brings together a whole bunch of themes from from our, our order of salvation. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Notice mercy, God has given us what we don't deserve. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Paul says to Titus, that's how God saved us. He sent the Holy Spirit to give you a new heart. Do you see? Yet again, not because of deeds, but because of his mercy. He saves. We don't save ourselves. How does he save? Rebirth through the Holy Spirit. When Luke says that God moved Lydia's heart to respond, what did he mean? He meant that God called her through Paul's preaching. As Paul taught the gospel... God called out to her in particular, gave her a new heart by the Holy Spirit and said, come, be one of mine. There may be loads of questions in the room. We're two weeks into eight weeks in this doctrine and there'll be lots more answers than questions further on. Come and see me afterwards if there are big burning questions right now. But let me land this, let me apply this to our lives for a moment. And let's begin with the hard things. Everyone in this room needs to humble our our hearts before God. We didn't come to Christ because we were cleverer than other people. Because we worked out that Jesus was real. We, We didn't come to Christ because of anything else. We were dead. Breathing in and out and dead as a dodo. We believed in Christ because God called us and gave us hearts to respond and we should praise him. And in fact, the the Bible isn't ashamed of these truths. We often get very uncomfortable about them, don't we? We we think, but but what about my choice? What what part did I play in this? Next week, come back next week, we'll talk about that. But the Bible, over and over and over again, says, praise God for this. 
doxology at the end of chapter 11 of Romans. Everything that happens is for God's glory, not for yours and mine. God is the reason for salvation. He, he's the great end of salvation. His glory, our enjoying his glory, sharing in his glory. He does what he does to show us that he is worth, worthy of all praise. It would therefore be a great error if we left here this morning without praising him from the bottom of our hearts for his great work in us. We don't deserve it, but he's done it anyway. Because there may be some of us here this morning who are not yet Christians. I wonder how will you respond to this? Perhaps you feel a desire to be called into the kingdom. Perhaps you hear God calling you right now, saying, you can come in. You're hearing his voice. Would you respond with repentance and faith? And if you're not sure how to do that, I'm going to pray a prayer at the end. Please pray with me. And then come and talk to me or Andy afterwards. We'd love uh, to share in uh, the, the joy of that and give glory to God with you. There may be some here who have never heard the call of God. Uh, Christianity makes no sense at all to you. Can I encourage you to do one thing then? Can you cry out to God to move your heart? To give you the new birth? To, to uh, remove the scales from your eyes that you can see the truth? You cannot become a Christian without it. Indeed, I want every single Christian here to pray for all of their friends and family and the people here who aren't yet Christians to have their scales removed from their eyes. Please pray. We should pray. One of the applications of this doctrine is we must pray. Pray for your neighbours, pray for your colleagues, pray for your family and pray for your friends. Unless God calls and regenerates, nobody becomes a Christian, everybody is lost. We need to pray for God to have mercy. But we have to pray with confidence. For when God acts, even the smallest apparent change is an utterly eternity transforming change. When God does something in the heart of any sinner to give them just the slightest taste of the goodness of God. That is extraordinary and glorious. And then, my friends, we must speak. We began by asking the question, what motivated Billy Graham to keep preaching when millions and millions of people heard the gospel and ignored it at his rallies? We must speak because God calls through our call, not without it. Billy Graham stood up before millions of people and, and told them the gospel because he knew that God was choosing some. And that was enough. God says to, to uh, Paul, stay in Corinth. It's a dreadful city, stay in Corinth. Because some of the people here are mine. You don't know who they are yet. That will become apparent as you preach the gospel. God calls our friends, our family, to become Christians through us speaking the gospel. If you feel weak, if you feel unable to speak cleverly or carefully, know that Paul felt the same. He writes marvellous books. He was a terrible public speaker, according to Corinthians. And he admitted it. But he still preached the gospel and people were saved. If you think, I haven't got the right words. They're so clever, my friends. They've got all of these objections to the gospel. Do you know, 
God can overcome all of that with the new birth. It's not your job to convert your friends. It is your job to speak the gospel. And let God convert your friends. I wonder if you've ever asked the question, why are so few people becoming Christians? It happens. There are, there are trickles, but not floods of people becoming Christians in this country. I wonder, why do you think that is? Is it that God has damned up his mercy against this country so that he just wants to judge everybody? Is that what's going on? Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Lift up your eyes and see. The harvest is rich. But God calls people into the kingdom through our speaking. And if we don't speak, people won't be converted. It is not that God has turned his back on Britain. It is that we have forgotten that it is he who saves. And he will have his people. And so we must pray. And we must speak. Let me end, though, with God. If you have come to know Christ, if he is your, your greatest love, then have confidence that he will keep you to the end. Jesus tells us in uh, John chapter 6, verse 37, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and everyone who comes to me I will never drive away. Do you hear that? If you're a Christian, then you are a gift of the, Holy, of the Heavenly Father to his Son. Have these people. Have a church, Jesus. My gift to you. And then in at chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Because no one is bigger than God. If you are in, then you are really in. Because Jesus is the sovereign God. He has received the church from his Father as a gift. He has taken them in his hands and nobody can take them out of his hands. Because saving the church is absolutely what God is doing. It brings him maximum glory to save sinful people for eternal life. He has staked his name on this congregation on each one of us that he will save us to the uttermost and I think that is worth praising him for shall we pray our wonderful loving heavenly father and lord Jesus holy spirit we, we delight in the, the trinity and we delight in your work that you would save even people like us have mercy on us. Help us to see what a wonderful thing it is. Help us to praise you with everything we are, that we are secure in your hands. And I pray for, for those amongst us who are not yet Christians. Please, Heavenly Father, call them. Please, Holy Spirit, come and give new life, even this morning, that we might again glorify you for your kindness and mercy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.